You can find our reading on uh, page 16 of the Church Bibles. And we're starting at chapter 16, reading 1 to 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You're responsible for the wrong I'm suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now she knows she's pregnant. She despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. So Sarai ill-treated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that was beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Harai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy, which is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bought Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, uh, Brian, for reading. Do keep that uh, passage uh, open. Um, it's good, isn't it, to be back in the story of, Gen- of uh, Genesis and Abraham. Uh, I hope starting to see the significance uh, of this story in the biggest story of the Bible, uh, seeing in God's promises to Abraham those great gospel promises that embrace not just one man in history, but embrace even us and encompass the world. And last time we were thinking about Abraham as a model of faith, uh, faith that justifies, that saves. Uh, And last week we discovered that it is uh, not the strength of our faith or the consistency of our faith that's crucial, but it's the object of our faith. It's all about who uh, we trust. Abraham trusts God, trusts God's word, believes what God says he will do, And says Paul in Romans 4, it was credited to him as righteousness. So Abraham receives God's great gospel promises without contributing anything, simply by taking God at his word. 
And that is great news, not least tonight when we see Abraham's faith wavering as he waits for God's promises to be fulfilled. And I hope that uh, when we are done this evening, we'll find ourselves rejoicing in a gracious God who is faithful even when we doubt and are faithless. Let's pray as we get ready to dive in. Father, we thank you for this great story and we're excited to be in it again uh, this evening. And Father, as we meet this, this wavering faith, we yeah, find ourselves echoing some of those questions and confusions and, and we pray that as we yeah, understand something of ourselves in this story, we would see something of you too, that God who's gracious, who's faithful, even when we're faithless. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, I guess most of us have been made promises. Uh, promises that require us to wait uh, for their fulfilment. Uh, and waiting can be, can be difficult, can't it? Especially when that waiting drags on. So here's a question. When we find ourselves in that situation of waiting uh, for promises to be kept... Uh, what kind of doubts go through our minds? I guess we might doubt ourselves, might we? We might wonder if we've understood the promise rightly, uh, missed perhaps some condition that we had to meet to ensure the delivery of that promise. Uh, we might wonder if something's happened, uh, some sort of circumstance beyond the control of the promiser uh, that prevents them keeping their promise. Uh, Tom said he'd meet me at Oxford Circus tube station, uh, but there was a signal failure. Well, all these might make us doubt a promise, but if I'm honest, most of my doubts surrounding promises tend to center on the person making the promise. Uh, will they forget? Uh, will they change their mind? Uh, are they trustworthy? Uh, do they really care? And last week we saw Abraham confused, uh, questioning God as he continues, doesn't he, to wait uh, for evidence of God's promises uh, to be kept. It's all very well talking about being my shield and my reward, but what actually have you done? Uh, what have you given me? We're still childless. You've done nothing you said you would do. But God reassures Abraham. Uh, he formalizes his, his promise, doesn't he, in a very dramatic way, underlining that he's all in, that he's committed to blessing the world on pain of death. Well, time has moved on. We get to our passage, chapter 16. Uh, verse 3 tells that it's been 10 years since Abraham and Sarah first arrived in Canaan, and even longer since God had made that first promise uh, to Abraham. And they're still waiting. Years of anguish and disappointment. Month follows month. Hopes raised. Hopes unfulfilled. Even crushed. Uh, maybe at first, uh, news of God's promises excited Abraham's household. And they were abuzz with news and wanting updates. Any news, Sarah? There was no news. No pregnancy. And soon those excited questions were replaced, I think, by embarrassed silence. So I can imagine the conversation that Sarah initiates in verse 2. Now, clearly the Lord has prevented me from having children, she begins. 
And it would be hard, wouldn't it, to disagree? Especially if you believe in a God who really is God, who's sovereign over all things, not least giving the gift of life. But notice how she concludes, if God hasn't given me a child so far, it has to be confirmation that it was never God's plan in the first place. In other words, she figures out she has misunderstood God's promise. And that leads her to come up with an alternative plan to build Abraham's family through someone else, through her Egyptian slave, Hagar. And you could argue, couldn't you, that Sarah hasn't given up entirely on God's purposes and promises, but simply reinterpreted them and adjusted them in the light of her own situation and circumstances. And I can imagine some of the reasoning going on in her head. Uh, God promised my husband offspring, a son who would be his own flesh and blood, but he never stipulated that I would be the child bearer. Perhaps I'm not part of the plan. Uh, Maybe I'm a hindrance to it now. Well, it's a desperate plan, isn't it? One writer says it gets A for creativity, but F for theology. Yes, it might have mirrored the practices in the culture around them. It wasn't uncommon for a wealthy person to build a family and maintain a family line uh, through a servant or slave. But it was a clear deviation from God's blueprint for sex and marriage. Not just desperate, but actually disobedient, something the story underlines if we read it very carefully. Well, right back in chapter 11 of Genesis, we learned, didn't we, that Sarah and Abraham were, were married. They were husband and wife. And now the narrator seems to be sort of rubbing our noses in that fact. Intent, it seems, on reminding us again, again, of this relationship. Verse 1, look down. And now Sarah, Abraham's wife. Verse 3. After Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarah, his wife. And then again in the same verse. Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband. Well, right back in the beginning of Genesis, God spells out his intention uh, for marriage. Two people, a man and a woman, becoming one flesh, husband and wife. It's very clear. And all you have to do is just read verse 3 again and just realize how messed up Sarah's plan is. Sarah, Abraham's wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar. Well, some bishops not too far from here are rightly, have rightly noted that there are numerous examples of polygamy in the Old Testament. But they wrongly conclude that it legitimizes a variety of patterns for marriage and sexual intimacy from which we're free to pick and mix. And here I think the Bible goes out of its way to underline that this plan of Sarah is not some plan that God approves of. It's not his plan for sex and marriage. And so it cannot be his plan for Abraham and Sarah and the route through which his promises will come. Now, when God promised Abraham a child, an heir, he meant it would be through Abraham and Sarah. And so Sarah's plan, it might have seemed reasonable within the culture they lived in. In fact, it displayed a lack of trust in God and his word. And again, the story is very carefully told here to underline what is actually happening. Um, See, there are a couple of phrases that get... That's very, unclear, very clear, I think, on what Sarah's plan means and what it is. So look down at the end of verse 2. Our Bible reads, uh, Abraham agreed with what Sarah said. 
Literally, it reads, Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. Does it remind you of anything? I think it takes us back to the fall, doesn't it? And to that first act of disobedience when we're told Abraham listened to the voice of his wife. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting that a husband should not be a good listener or ignore every suggestion his wife makes. Back in the garden, Adam had been given clear responsibilities and instructions from God. And in the vital moment, he abdicated his responsibility to lead and ignored God's instructions in an act of disobedience and failure to trust God's word. Now, Abraham, I think, is doing the same thing. And the Bible, I think, reinforces that link as Sarah takes her slave and gives her to her husband, mirroring the same words used as Eve takes that fruit and gives it to Adam. Well, here are Sarah and Abraham uh, taking matters into their own hands, uh, doing what seems right in their own eyes, trusting uh, themselves rather than trusting God's word. So we know what happens, don't we, back in Genesis 3, the act of disobedience unleashes a dreadful chaos and mess. And so what do you think is going to happen now in this story? Well, we don't have to wait long, do we, to find out. So Abraham sleeps with Hagar and she conceives. Bingo. But instead of joy and celebration, there's accusation and recrimination as relationships begin to implode. Indeed, in an instant, a a harmonious home becomes a, a, a war zone. So straight away, Hagar begins to despise Sarah, take it out on her and treat her with contempt. And the Hebrew is a very strong word. She treats her as insignificant and dishonorable, next to worthless, as she mistakenly thinks that she's triumphed where her mistress has failed. And Sarah, stung by the insults, lashes out to Abraham. This is all your fault. I put my servant in your hands and look how she treats me. Let God judge and show who's at the fault here and it ain't me. And Abraham, well, he does what most blokes do. Simply denies any responsibility, passing the back, uh, quite cynically, I think, back to Sarah as he gives his wife back to her. It's your mess, he says. Uh, This is the bed you made for yourself. You line it. Hardly the sacrificial leadership that Sarah needed, I think, at this moment. I think it would be fair to say. It's a mess, isn't it? People who once trusted God and were waiting on his blessings now are using God to bring down curses on each other. And there's no innocent party here, is there? Hagar, their new power, desperately cruel. Sarah's in denial about where the plan came from, and Abraham denies any responsibility and simply disengages. Well, a lot happens, doesn't it, in a few short verses. But one thing we can be sure of, uh, nothing has happened that has resulted in God's promises being fulfilled. There's lots of huffing and puffing, but nothing that has moved God's plans forward one inch. If anything, things have gone backwards. We're going to pick up the story in a moment. But I think the story does come, doesn't it, with a health warning. Doubting God's promises taking matters into our own hands, coming up with our own alternative plans to God's plans for us, it's not the path to blessing, is it? And in fact, it's often the route to chaos and misery. And I think the Bible uses this story to urge us not to doubt God, especially when it comes to his big promises, his gospel promises and blessings. 
You see here, if you like, we have Abraham and Sarah trying to manufacture, to, to bring about God's blessings through their own efforts. And we saw so clearly last week that God had promised to do all the running. It's a covenant with Abraham that depended entirely on what God would do for Abraham, not anything Abraham would do for God. Well, later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul would use this very story as a picture of what happens when we try and get God's big gospel blessings through our own efforts, when we try and do all the running or simply try and add our bits. And it is, says Paul, a complete contradiction to the way God works, in direct opposition to the, the blessing and salvation that does come simply by trusting God and his promise. Paul was writing to some Christians in a place called Galatia. Uh, he was writing to people who, like Abraham, had heard God's great gospel promises of family and home and blessing and had trusted Jesus for them. They had trusted that Jesus had taken on the cross their curse so they might receive his blessing. They had received that promise with great joy. But those very same Christians, as they waited for the ultimate fulfillment of those blessings, decided to help those blessings along by taking matters into their own hands, making their little contribution. In this instance, trying to keep some of the Jewish law and fulfilling many of its obligations. And guess what happened? Rather than giving them joy, it produced misery, uh, division, envy, and ugly uh, comparisons, bickering, and chaos in the family of God. In one very telling verse, Paul just looks at the carnage of their sort of DIY effort and says, so where's your joy gone? <laughs> well, we could ask the same question, can we, of, of Abraham and Sarah here. When God gave you these great gospel promises, didn't it blow you away with joy? Uh, when, you, when you heard what he was going to do, didn't it thrill your hearts as he blew your mind and pointed you to the stars? Didn't it leave you flawed in wonder? And what have your DIY efforts achieved? Where's your joy? When we refuse to trust God, to take God at his word, when it comes to those great gospel promises, we end up robbed of joy. Part of that loss of joy is that inevitable loss of, of certainty that God wants us to have. Do you remember last week God said to Abraham, no for certain, as he spells out all that he will do. And that's the foundation for our confidence and hope. It's not anything we do as weak, sinful, faithless people, but it's all that God, as the faithful, powerful, promise-keeping God will do. And I know that when I shift my hopes and confidence onto something I do uh, to deliver uh, those promises, I, I lose my joy and my confidence in God's blessing. I lose the enjoyment of those blessings I already have, I think, and the confidence of those I'm still waiting for. It just makes for chaos. Now, the chaos of trying to manipulate people to get my thing done. Uh, the misery of making excuses for my failure and sin rather than enjoying the wonder of God's forgiveness one for me. That's a joyless experience, isn't it? As we lose our sense of intimacy with our Father. As we're filled with anxiety, as we try and fix things ourselves rather than run to God. As we live in that sort of state of perpetual guilt, uh, all the time. And serving God becomes a sense of obligation rather than something we do out of thankfulness. Well, our passage, I think, urges us to give up our DIY, add my bit attempts and just to come back to God and depend on what he's promised. 
Well, if you're exploring Christianity this, morning, this evening, uh, working out the entry requirements, working out the, the hoops you've got to jump through to get God's blessings and joy what's offered, the good news is, the liberating news is, we simply trust God. We simply have to trust him. And that means even tonight we can know that joy of all those blessings that he's promised. Well, if this story is a warning about not trusting God's big uh, gospel promises, I think it's also a reminder about the dangers of not trusting God's word when it comes to his plans and purposes for us as we live in the present. See, God does tell us that, well, tell us how to live when it comes to things like relationships, doesn't it, and marriage. And when we think we can come up with better ideas that we know how to live better than our creator. We can expect mess, can't we? We can expect uh, carnage as our failure to trust God wrecks lives, it poisons relationships and distorts life. And the question is, do I trust in God's goodness that his plans for my life are good? I never forget a young guy at our church growing up who I looked up to as a teenager, sharing with tears Uh, the joylessness and pain of rejecting God's plans when it came to sexual intimacy in marriage. Deciding the challenge of waiting would rob him of joy, doubting the goodness of God's wisdom and plans. This is a challenging story, isn't it? A warning, I think, from God, if you like, who warns, not because he wants to rob us of joy, but because he longs for us to know that confident joy, even now as we wait Uh, for all his promises to be fulfilled. Well, if there is a warning here, I think there is also uh, incredible comfort and an assurance for people who are often impatient and often are faithless. Just on God's commitment to bless even to those who doubt him and fail him. And I pray these will be assurances that help us as we trust and as we wait So we pick up the story at the end of verse 6 with Hagar running for safety from the chaos back home. And as she heads back to Egypt, where she comes from, originally she meets uh, someone introduced to us as the angel of the Lord. We've not been introduced to him before, but he will appear again in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament. And he's someone clearly who represents God and speaks for him. Indeed, intriguingly, in verse 13, it seems that in some way this encounter with uh, Hagar and this individual is an encounter with the Lord himself. And the conversation that follows reveals that while others are oblivious to Hagar's situation, they seem unaware that even that Hagar may have gone and is in danger, the Lord is aware. He knows Hagar by name and he knows her anguish and pain. And now as the Lord uh, commands her to return home to Abraham and Sarah, he now makes Hagar remarkable promises. Promises that reveal she's much more than just some pawn in the hands of her human masters. God has heard her cries. And now he will reveal his plans to bless this slave girl in ways that will blow her mind. Verse 11, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Verse 11, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. 
Wow. You can't miss, can you, those echoes of those great gospel promises to Abraham here, uh, and they are jaw-dropping, aren't they? But just in case we're tempted in any way to think that God is now about to adopt Sarah's plan B, verse 12 makes it very clear this is a very different promise with a very different outcome. He will be a wild donkey of a man, his hands will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. Quite strange words, aren't they? Uh, not the sort of words you might put on a, birthday, a birth card, a baby card, but do you see, God is going to be gracious to Hagar, but he's very clear this is not the line of promise, certainly not the means of blessing a broken world. No, in that regard, this is clearly a dead end, and God is adamant that his great gospel blessings will come not from any human plans, but only through his plans. Well, we're nearly done, but did you spot there's some very important names in this part of the story? Ishmael, the name God gives to Hagar's unborn son, which means God has heard. And this remarkable encounter causes Hagar to give the God she has encountered a name. It's unusual, isn't it? El Roy, the God who sees. And the place of encounter is also given a name, Beer Lahai Roy, the well of the living one who sees me. God was not unaware of Hagar's misery or the misery back home. Indeed, in the future, every time she will call out her son's name, she will be reminded that God hears her. Every time she remembered that strange encounter, she remember the spot where she met the God who sees sees her. Says so he's not some insignificant extra to God, even if it isn't the line that will be the line of blessing, but she discovers that God hears, God sees, God cares. But I think this is how the chapter ends is most significant. Let's head back with Hagar, back to the mess we've left behind. What is God going to do in the shambles that has been produced by Sarah and Abraham's impatience and faithlessness and all the fallout that comes from it? Verse 15. So Hagar bore Abraham a son. Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Well, it might be simply read as a statement of fact. But what's clear from these two verses? Well, it is clear, isn't it, that Hagar did return as God commanded. And it's clear that Hagar told Abraham all about the encounter with God. And we know that because, verse 15, Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. So do you see, in the most remarkable ways, God uses the result of Abraham's and Sarah's disobedience and faithlessness as a means of assuring them of his care and grace. I am the God who sees. I know about the pain of waiting, the anguish of disappointment, and of living in the not yet. And I think his naming his son, which was his prerogative, not Hagar's, is not simply an act of obedience, but a reaffirmation that in spite of the spectacular wobble, Abraham now trusts God. He will keep hold on God's promises again and again and put his hope in God and what he said he will do. 
And I think he will do that even more confident than ever that the blessing does not depend even on his faithfulness and his commitment to God, but on God's faithfulness and commitment to him and to Sarah. Isn't it amazing how God's grace abounds even when our sin abounds? How God even uses our human sin and mess to demonstrate his faithfulness and care. Well, God hadn't forgotten Abraham and Sarah. This is a story in which they discover afresh in a new way their God is a God who hears their cries, uh, the living one who knows and sees their pain. And they're not abandoned. They haven't fallen off God's radar. That he cares and he's committed to bringing his promised blessings to those at times who despair and cry out how long. Well, in a week where I guess most of us have cried out in anguish, we have a God here who, who sees and he hears. And he cares and he will keep all of his promises. That's the God we have. And that's the God we hold on to, even as we wait. Let's pray. Father, as we are just brought face to face again with human frailty and faithlessness, human weakness, humans not being able to do what they want to do, Father, we thank you that you are so different from us. You are faithful. You see and you hear. Father, forgive us when we try and squeeze you down, as it were, so that we can understand you. Father, we can't always understand you, but we pray that even tonight, as we see something of your grace and kindness, that we would once again turn back to you, back to your promises. Those big gospel promises that we still wait for in terms of fulfillment. Those promises of being with us, not forsaking us today, tomorrow. Help us, Lord, to keep trusting you as that God who sees and hears and cares. For Jesus' sake, amen.